And so what I learned was I can treat the fruit or I can treat the root, right? The fruit was all the anxiety, but the root cause was this trauma I experienced around homelessness. So by going and facing that trauma and building homes for the homeless in Cambodia and Mexico and Africa, it helped me have positive experiences around that negative connotation of homelessness, right? Now I'm bringing hope and I'm helping other people with that specific problem that I dealt with, homelessness. And once I started doing that, I started rewiring my brain away from the trauma to something positive. Now, when we talk about homelessness, I can tell the story of being homeless, but that's not the predominant memory that I have in my mind because I've built up all these other positive memories around it. This is the Military Sherpa Podcast. Left, right, left leadership insights from America's best. With your Military Sherpa, Mark Tilsher. Welcome back to the Military Sherpa Podcast. I am your host, Mark, and I'm really excited today to have a special guest on our show, Sergeant Q. And to give you an idea of who he is, Aaron is a Marine First Anglico veteran who specialized in communication as a forward observer. He holds billets for Naval Weapons Security Management and Close Combat Instructor. He received badges for Expert Marksmanship and Master Parachutist. He's the owner of Reliable Commercial Cleaning and founder of the veteran nonprofit Q Missions and the author of Peeling Through Service. He received the 2016 Distinguished Service to Veterans Award and the 2018 Superior Award from the Department of Veterans Affairs. He was awarded the 2017 Hometown Hero Award from Kiro 7 News. Sergeant Q, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come and share with your audience my message of hope and healing. Oh, man, I, I am so excited to hear, hear from you. Like I told you in the pre-show that I'm more excited to talk to you and, and get my audience exposed to you than anybody else I've ever talked to. And that's legit. Uh, the first thing that I want to talk to you about is so you have a, a combat background, which means you've been through hardship. But as I go through your Instagram, I see you're hanging out in the airport pool, like with your feet up, like you've come a long way, brother. <laughs> yes, I think it's so funny. Yeah, absolutely. The stuff that I'm doing now, I could have never imagined myself doing, you know, because uh, when I came back from Iraq, I really struggled with mental health. I was homeless as a kid. And then again, when I came back from Iraq, I was homeless a second time living in my car, didn't have a job dealing with anxiety and depression, battling suicidal ideations. You know, that was 14 years ago. And I look at how far I've come in 14 years. I'm just, I'm amazed most times that I've been able to overcome these things and and live a healthy, rewarding life. Now, that doesn't mean I still don't battle with them because I absolutely do. You know, the battle's still there. I've just gotten strong. And I think that that held me back for a long time, believing that these PTSD things would just go away or I wouldn't feel depressed anymore or I wouldn't have anxiety anymore. I was waiting for these things to go away. And what I realized is they're not going to go away. I just have to learn how to live with them and become stronger so they don't overwhelm me. And once I had that mental shift in my mind, I started being able to find solutions to do that. Yeah, dude, that's, that's awesome insight, man. And I think that that's one of the things that gets really discouraging sometimes when, because mental health is a huge part of my story. Uh, for those of you watching YouTube, you see my shirt. Those of you who aren't, I got my mental health awareness shirt on today from Project Mahal. And one of the things I think that has been most, I don't want to say disappointing for me, but one of the things that has been hardest for me to struggle with over the course of my life is I've thought that I could get over it or I thought I could come to a point where I wouldn't struggle with these things anymore. And, and the thing I, I think I'll get your comment on or, or ask the question is, so like I searched for that in medication for a really long time. Thankfully, I didn't fall into self-medication where you know I didn't fall into drugs and alcohol to kind of cope through some of my past, but I definitely went through mental health and, and mental health medication journeys. And after a year, I literally just 
ended a, a year and a half long journey and I'm taking a year off of medication now. And that's one of the most disappointing things was that I thought that I could get to a point even through medication where, you know, I just would be fine. I'd be a normal person, whatever that means. Right. But I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I went through that too. You know, I went through the VA and they really just over-medicated me. And I was like, well, these symptoms are worse than the actual PTSD, you know, some of them. And so I was really disheartened with that as well. So I understand that journey and man, I, I really feel it. And the hard thing for me was number one, admitting that I was struggling, right? Because here I am, you know, I'm one of these top tier performers. I'm in Anglico. I've been promoted very quickly. I'm a master parachutist, naval weapons security manager. I've done all these really cool things, high speed things with Anglico. And now I'm homeless living in my car. Like that was a, that was a pretty far fall, right? And then looking back up, like how the heck did I get here and how do I get out? And admitting that number one, I was 50% of every problem that I had, at least 50%. That was really, really tough. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They live in this, what I call victim mentality, where they just blame everybody and everything for their problems. And they're not willing to take any personal accountability for that. And so I lived there for a very, very long time. And what I realized is that to understand mental health was really difficult. And so I had to compare it to something that I already knew. I had to compare it to a physical injury, right? And so when you talk about medication, medication has a piece of the puzzle, but it's just a piece. And so if we look at a physical injury, like if I broke my arm, right, or if I had some big open wound, the first thing I'd do is I'd ask for help. Like, hey, man, can you get me to the hospital? Because, you know, I got this boo-boo over here. And you would take me there. They would assess me. They would give me some medication for pain in the short term. They would do some surgery and then they would send me home. And when they sent me home, they'd give me a plan for healing. And I would share that with my friends and family. Like, hey, I got this busted wing over here. I need uh, a little bit of space and grace so I can heal. So their expectation of me is going to be a little bit different, right? They're not going to call me on Saturday and say, hey, man, can you help me move this couch? I'm like, nah, dude, remember I got that broken wing. But if I don't explain it to them, I just say, no, I'm not going to do it. Then they think I'm a jerk. Or if I go to help, not telling them that I'm injured, and then they touch that injury and I have an overreaction because it causes me pain, but I didn't tell them about it. Again, that can damage the relationship. And so if I tell them that I'm injured, then they can give me space and grace so I can heal and they can help me out with some things because they know I'm not 100%. Well, it's the same thing with a mental wound. Mental health is the same way. Now, if you get if you receive a mental health injury, right, which is what PTSD and anxiety it comes from an injury from trauma, we have to treat it the same way. Number 1, we say, "Hey, I need some help." Then your friends are going to take you to the hospital and they're going to get you in front of some professionals. They're going to create a treatment plan for you. They might give you some medication for the short term, right? Like if you're on oxycodone for 10 years because of an injury, there's something wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Same thing with mental health, right? There's some people who have a chemical imbalance who definitely need medication. But for the majority of us who experience trauma, that medication should really just be for the short term to get us through the rough patch. And they give us some life skills so we don't need the medication. And that's my personal experience. It's my personal opinion on the whole medication part that it should be for the short term. But then when we return home, we share with our friends and family like, hey, this is what happened. This is my treatment plan. I need you to help me hold me accountable. And they're also going to give you some space and some grace so you can heal from that mental health wound. And if we look at, you know, the way we treat physical wounds and apply that same concept to a mental health wound, that's where I've had the greatest success. 
Yeah, that's like that's excellent, man. I remember this comic that I read. Uh, it was just like a cartoon comic, but I remember this comic I saw one time. And the first like six panels of the comic where this guy he was walking around with like this withered hand, and you might have seen it. If not, I'm gonna forward it to you. But he's walking around with this withered hand, and everybody else is like every panel is someone looking at him going. Stop talking about your hand. Why do you keep focusing on your hand? Why do you keep thinking about just ignore it and everything will be fine. And then they go to the last panel and it's the same guy, but he's actually just dealing with depression. Right. And so it's linking those two things together, which is like, okay, you wouldn't say that to somebody who had a phys- But the challenge with that is that, you know, and you, I think you know a lot more about this than I do, which is great. But the uh, when you look at depression or you look at a brain that's suffering through depression, or you look at a brain that's struggling through PTSD or anxiety or any of these issues, ADHD, for example, under a brain scan, you can tell two different brains, which one is the brain that's struggling with depression, which one is the brain that's struggling with PTSD, like we can see it and we can measure it. And so that idea of people around us not recognizing it as an injury, I think that's a grave mistake. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And so I, I actually wrote it. That's the opening chapter of my book is talking about these three mental health camps that we usually find ourselves in. And sometimes, you know, most people have been in all three of these and sometimes you're in two of them at the same time. And so when I first wrote the book and I sent it to the publisher and I was totally done, like I'm done. I've never written a book before. There was the first one. And I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm like, huh, there's so much more work than I thought it would be. And she reads through it and she gets all the editing done. She says, you know, Aaron, I think I've been praying about this. And I think that there's another chapter you're supposed to write. And I was like, no, I, I'm done. Like I, I got nothing else. It's all I got. And she's like, well, we'll just pray about it. I think that it's missing something. And so I did, I went back and I prayed about it and I'd had this concept in my mind that hadn't been fully fleshed out yet. Right. It was just kind of these concepts as I'm working through my own trauma and then working with other veterans who are dealing with trauma. Um, this concept that I had come up with, which I call the three camps, the three mental health camps. And so I love to share this part. And so on the far left, you have a minority camp, which is what I call the victim mentality. These are people who are a constant victim of their circumstances. Uh, They never take any personal responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. They got fired because they do their job better than their boss, right? Like we know people like that in our life. And sometimes we are that person. I know I lived in that victim mentality for a long time, feeling like the world owed me something because I went to combat and I came back all messed up and it was everybody else's fault. And so I lived there for a very long time, but that's a minority camp on the left. Another minority camp is the minority camp on the right. These are the people who say derogatory things about mental health, like, oh, they're weak. They just need to get over it. If they tried harder, and I hear this from the faith community, you know, if they just prayed more that they would just, you know, be able to overcome that. And so what that does, that damages the conversation about mental health. But again, those are minority camps. And I lived in that camp too before I became injured, where I just thought, not in a derogatory way, but I thought that, oh, PTSD and stuff like that, that only happens to guys who are like superheroes, right? The guys that have multiple combat tours, who've got all these, you know, bronze stars for valor, stuff like that, right? Like those are the guys who get PTSD. Not me, who just did an average job, did one tour. Like I, I I don't deal with mental health stuff, right? And so I was part of that camp too. But the majority of us, the majority of people live in the middle. And I call it the silent majority camp. Because we're people who have dealt with mental health, we're struggling with anxiety or depression, but we're surviving. And a lot of us are thriving. We're moms, we're dads, we're business owners, we're doctors, lawyers, police officers, active duty military. We're doing all these great things, but we're still struggling. But we suffer in silence. And why do we do that? We do that because we're too afraid of the people on the right, the denier camp, painting us as the people on the left, the victim mentality. So we just shut up and we say, 
nothing because we don't want to be judged. We don't want to lose our security clearance. We don't want people to think we can't handle our job or our command or command troops or be in law enforcement out on the street if we're struggling with anxiety or depression. And so they suffer in silence and they never get help. And so here's the only way that we can change this conversation is for the silent majority to step out of the darkness and say, hey, man, I struggle. And that's all I've really done. You know, I mean, I have 120 employees here in the Pacific Northwest. I have an award-winning nonprofit. I have a technology startup. I'm a speaker, trainer, and coach for John Maxwell. And there's some days that I cannot get out of bed because I feel so depressed. And there's other days where I'm having so much anxiety that I literally crawl in my desk and take a quick nap because that's the only thing that'll reset my brain from pumping those chemicals out. Yeah. And, And I deal with that stuff. And so here's what happens when the silent majority says, hey, man, I struggle with mental health too. It changes the conversation for everybody. For the people on the right, the denier camp, it changes what they think mental health looks like. It's not just some broken person living on the street who can't find housing or a job, right? It changes what they think mental health is because they look at somebody like me and say, man, I I would have never guessed that you deal with anxiety and depression. So yeah, man, I deal with it every day. It changes what they think that looks like. And for the people on the left, the victim mentality, it gives them hope that they can do better and be better. But most importantly, what it does is it empowers the silent majority to be brave enough to stand up and say, hey, man, I struggle too, uh, and we can get through this together and start finding solutions. And And then we just walk out of the darkness together. And that's what I try and do is normalize talking about mental health. And so I have a TikTok and a YouTube, and I always talk about these different mental health concepts that people can use to start conversations in their own friend groups, in their families, so they can have a platform to talk about mental health. And dude, that has been the most impressive thing about you. So first of all, you need to be speaker, trainer, coach on our team. And like, I don't know what you're doing. I love John Maxwell. He's amazing. But man, you got a good home here. So, you know, I'll, I'll just throw that on the table. So okay. as one of the things I was thinking of while you were talking is I, I looked at this study the other day and I'd love to get you to weigh in on this. So there, I said a study. That's probably not the right word for this. It's a preliminary study. And what they're finding is that there seems to be a trend right now. And I don't, we don't have to delve into this trend because it's, it's like a, real political thing. I think we, we can, if you want to, but there seems to be this trend right now where like everybody is identifying themselves as whatever their mental health issue is. Right. So it's like, Oh, I, I have anxiety. Oh, I have PTSD. Oh, I have this, I have that. And it becomes very much like a part of our identity, like a shirt that we wear. And what they're finding is that, okay, wait, they thought that, Hey, working through your mental health issues and really owning them is the solution to this problem. And what they're finding is that the more that people identify with their trauma, and let me know if this doesn't make sense, but the more that people identify with their trauma, the harder it is for them to overcome it. And so what they're finding is that the more that we focus on our trauma or our mental health as something that happened to us, but not who we are, the easier it is for us to process it. And that the more that we internalize it as part of our identity, the harder it is for us to overcome it. And so do you want to talk a little bit about that? Of like, I, like you have PTSD, you deal with PTSD, but what's the difference between PTSD being something that you deal with and something that you are, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's so funny. I wrote a whole chapter on identity in my book and that's why I was just grabbing it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I yeah. wrote a whole chapter about this. Let me so I think I'm throwing you softballs, man. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> trying to get, I'm trying to hit you in your lane. That's it. So not, knock it out of the park. Yeah, it's so funny. I I talk about my experience being a Marine, right? And so if you've ever worked with a Marine or you know a Marine, they're all about the Marine Corps, right? Like it's just their identity. It's who they are to the very core of their being. And I tell a story in the book about how I was moving and I found my dress blues and I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's really cool. And I sat there and thought about it for a few minutes, like all the things I'd done as a Marine and wearing the uniform. And I looked at it like, but I don't fit in that uniform anymore. No, you don't. I was going to ask if you put that uniform on and how that went. 
yeah, no, I, I don't fit in it. And it's, you know, my shoulders are broader, you know, my neck is bigger, my waist is bigger, right? Like, you know, I'm in my 40s now. And I looked at that that I wore when I was 19, but it was a great symbol of I hadn't just grown physically, but I had grown mentally and emotionally and in my career. I'm still a Marine, but I am so much more than that now. You know, I have a family. I travel the world. I speak internationally. I run a company. I have a nonprofit. I wrote a book. Like I've done all these other things outside of being a Marine. I'm still a Marine. And so with me, when you look at mental health, right? Like I still deal with depression, but I am not depression, right? I am so much more than that. It's a piece of me. That's for sure. But that's not where I find my identity. Number one, I find my identity in Christ, but I also find my identity in overcoming these things, not being held back by them. And so I give what I call the slingshot analogy. And so if we look at a slingshot, you look at a stone and that stone's really not going to move very far in our lifetime. Now we can pick it up and we can toss it and it might move a few feet. But if we take up that same stone and we put it in that slingshot, the farther that we pull that slingshot back, when we release that rock, it's going to fly farther than anybody ever thought possible. Right. And so when we look at our own life, the trauma that we've experienced, the trauma that I experienced as a kid, as an adult in combat, living on the streets, all of that stuff is holding me back. And it absolutely is. So if you're listening to this, all that trauma, I'm not discounting it. All those things that happen to you, they truly are holding you back in life. That's a hundred percent true. But just like that stone, when you release that stone, it flies farther than anybody thought possible. And see, you are that stone in the slingshot. And as soon as you let go of that past hurt and pain, it's going to launch you farther into your future than you ever thought possible. And that's what it's been for me is taking the things that I've learned about mental health and teaching it to other people. Now, if I just kept it to myself, I would have some success, but I've had true success in helping other people find the same success that I did is teaching people, training people, writing this book. And if anybody's ever wrote a book before, you know, it's a very expensive and labor intensive process, right? It's not something that I recommend people do because it is so much work and it costs a lot of money. If you're not a known author, like nobody's going to pay you to just write a book. Okay. You're self-publishing this thing. So I've written the book and I've created a video series curriculum for it. So I'm probably into it like 50 grand. Unless you're writing some fiction novel and you hit it big, you know, you're not going to become a multimillionaire by writing books to teach people how to overcome trauma. It's just not, not a New York bestseller like some of these other authors who write about mythical creatures and wizards and stuff, right? <laughs> so, um, but all those things to go back, all those things that you think in your life are holding you back, they really are until you realize that you can let go of them. And then that will be the catalyst to launch you farther into your future. You got to take that trauma, that hurt and pain, and you got to harness it and you got to ride it like lightning onto victory. And this is, I think, the part that I'm most excited to talk about because for people that are listening, right? Like mental health issues, I have severe clinical ADHD and I didn't get diagnosed until I was like 42. And now I look back at my career and like I failed out of college twice. I barely passed high school and only because I had a teacher who got some of my grades changed for me because he didn't want me to fail. And so it's like, I can look back and I see the impact that this had. And it's not so easy for me to just drop it and be like, all right, I'm just going to get over it. And and that's relatively minor when you consider that some of the people listening to this podcast, some of them are going to have assault trauma and some of them are going to battlefield trauma and some of them. And so it can be done. Right. Like I look at people like you who are incredibly healthy and I look at people like me who are pretty functional. Right. And some other folks who have gone on to do amazing things to impact and, and help others. But it isn't so easy to just release it and fly like an eagle. Right. And I don't know that I want you to finish that in one sentence, but I think it's a good segue to be like, all right, 
let's talk about this idea of healing through service. Let's start there. I think that's a really good place to start. So we've talked about your book several times and that's exciting, but what is this? Like what, what is healing through service? Yeah. So healing through service is a process that I learned over the last 15 years of serving the community and serving God. And so I started reading the Bible. And at the same time, I was reading these medical journals, trying to figure out what was going on with my brain. Why was it malfunctioning? What was happening here? Trying to unpack that, figure it out. And I learned some really profound things that I couldn't have learned anywhere else except out on the mission field. And so the first thing I learned was that science and scripture are not at odds. Actually, science is proving what the Bible has been telling us for generations. So even if you're not a Christian, you don't believe in God, it's totally fine. You can still respect the Bible as being a tremendous historical document that is literally the best-selling book of all time. So you can at least see that there's some ancient knowledge there that you can glean from it. And so that's what I did is I took and I married this scripture and science together and created an action plan. And so every chapter of the book, we talk about a different mental health concept and we, we talk about how to live out this idea of healing through service. Cause remember I said that it's not like a one and done, right? You're going to go and you're going to be okay. It's going to go away. No, you got to develop some skills to be able to learn how to live with this thing. Just like if you had lost a limb, you might not be able to run a marathon, but if you got a prosthetic, you could. Right. And so you got to put things in place to help you be successful where you have a weakness. And so that's what we talk about in healing through service is how to build that mental resiliency. How does the brain operate? And then what can we do when it malfunctions? And so I use military battle tactics and emerging research and I create this plan. So every chapter we go over a concept, we introduce the concept, then we talk about the science behind it. Then we talk about what does scripture say? And then we take those three things and we put them together and we create an action plan, something you can do right now today to put this concept into play so you can prove it to yourself. Because I don't want you guys to just read this and be like, oh yeah, this is great. I believe it because Aaron said it. No, no, no. I want you to do these tasks because you're going to prove it to yourself. You're going to see these things happen in your own life. And so the first thing that I have people do is start journaling, right? Start taking notes of their daily activities. How do they feel about certain things? Just get in that habit so you can self-reflect. The second thing we do is we start doing small acts of kindness for people every single day. It could be anything. Pay somebody a compliment, help them with their groceries, help somebody you know finish a task they have at work, whatever that is, just a small act of kindness. But then we want you to record that. How did you feel before? How did you feel after? And most times people are like, oh, I was nervous. I felt weird doing this, you know? And then after it's like, oh, I felt, I felt, you know, better. I felt this way. And so we track that over the whole six weeks that you go through the book, because we do it as a small group study. You track that and you start putting these concepts together. And so there's research out there that shows that altruism helps build mental resiliency. It's the number one thing that we can do is to help other people, which that sounds counterintuitive, right? And the whole book can really be summed up as into that, right? Is go out and help other people. You're going to feel better. And people read that and they're like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. But that's why we put them through those little tiny steps. So they start proving it to themselves along the way. So really, I'm just kind of Mr. Miyagiing people through the process. Yeah. Like, hey, just paint the fence. Like, I don't understand this. Like, just paint the fence. Right. Like I'm teaching a class right now locally where I've got a group of students and I've got one gal in there and she is smart as a whip, man. And she continues to ask questions that are going to be answered in the next chapter. I'm like, just focus on this one thing. Like we're going to get there. Just focus on doing this. One step ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's great. But I learned this just by going and doing it, right? Like there weren't any books about this or anything like that. It wasn't until I started researching like how the brain operated that I figured out, oh, when I go over to Cambodia and I build homes for the homeless over there, I feel better. Well, why does that happen? 
right? And then I'd come right. back and I'd start to kind of burn in. And then I would go volunteer at the soup kitchen. And I'd feel a little better. And then I would start to drift off again. And then and then I realized like, okay, I, to stop this yo-yo effect, I need to make this a lifestyle. I can't just go and do this one time a year. I've got to live this principle out. And once I did that, man, it was such a game changer. I learned how to really rewire my brain away from trauma. And we talk about that in the book. When you have a negative experience, when you have something traumatic that happens to you, uh, if all we do is focus on that negative, our subconscious mind is going to say, oh, okay, you want to look at negative stuff. Let me pull up all these other negative things. And it starts pulling down all this other information and giving it to you. Then we get overwhelmed. We start to have anxiety, depression, all of that. So don't be a passenger to your mind. You can take control of your mind. The Bible tells us that to take every thought captive. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, when you have that thought, you have to learn, and we teach this in the book, you have to learn the process of taking that negative experience and finding something positive. And so here's an example in my own life, uh, being homeless as a kid and being homeless again as an adult. That's a really negative experience. So anytime people talked about homelessness, it, it made me feel anxiety. I was like, ah, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to be around it. Like avoidance, total avoidance. Like, nope, nope, nope. New conversation, new friend group. I'm out of here because it brought back a lot of pain and trauma into my life. And it brought back, you know, it wasn't just the homelessness, but then it reminded me of the abuse of my dad and then my combat experience. And so anytime something bad would happen, like a customer would be upset in my company, automatically I'd feel anxiety about it. And then it would bring up all that negative stuff. And instantly I was going to be homeless again, right? That's exactly where my brain went. I was going to be yeah. homeless and then it would get out of control. And so what I learned was I can treat the fruit or I can treat the root, right? The fruit was all the anxiety, but the root cause was this trauma I experienced around homelessness. So by going and facing that trauma and building homes for the homeless in Cambodia and Mexico and Africa, it helped me have positive experiences around that negative connotation of homelessness, right? Now I'm yep. bringing hope and I'm helping other people with that specific problem that I dealt with, homelessness. And once I started doing that, I started rewiring my brain away from the trauma to something positive. Now, when we talk about homelessness, I can tell the story of being homeless, but that's not the predominant memory that I have in my mind because I've built right. up all these other positive memories around it. So in our brain, we have what's called a negative bias. And the negative bias tells us that a negative experience is going to be weighed five to seven times heavier than a positive one. So if you and I have a negative experience, and so in the audience, if you're listening to this, think about like a person that you've recently had a negative experience with, right? Probably friend or family member. And if you just leave it there, you know, that social credit is just going to kind of drop and drop and drop and drop. And you're going to be at a deficit. So you have to make a conscious effort to have positive experiences with that individual just so you can get back to normal. And that means you're going to have to have five to seven positive experiences with that person to get back to normal, not even to build a relationship, just to get back to neutral where you started. And so think about marriages, right? Divorce rate is huge. And I deal with a lot of guys who are uh, veterans and they come in and they just dump on me about their wife, right? Like, oh, she did these three things, right? And so they give me three things that she did that was negative. And I just listen. So, okay, great. Now I want you to give me 21 things that she did that was positive. And I said, I got all day. Let's just sit and wait. And I make them go through that exercise, why they appreciate their wife. And by the time they're done with that, they're like, oh, I feel much better. And you're right. Those things that she was doing, that's really small and compared to all the other great things. But the negative bias does that to us. And so that's a great tip for you guys right now. Try that with a friend or family member. Next time that your wife leaves a towel on the floor and it frustrates you, I want you to just think of like five to seven positive things that you appreciate about her and just watch what happens to your mood. Watch what happens to your mental resiliency. Watch what happens to that thing that's bugging you of her leaving the towel on the floor. Now you're just like, eh, I'll just pick it up and hang it up. It's no big deal, right? Because you are offsetting that negative bias that is created when we have a, a negative experience. 
that's legit. The it's it's one of the cool things about being alive right now, I think, which is that we actually are starting to understand when you say rewire your brain, like we actually now understand what that means, right? We're talking about legitimately rewiring your brain. There are neural pathways between your different brain cells and the different areas of your brain. And the more that you use those neural pathways, they get thicker and the less you use them, they they don't. And, and it's just basically the idea of like a little kid who's trying to feed themselves with a spoon. It's like, there is no neural pathway to get that spoon into their mouth. So initially they can't even hold it and then they can like hit their forehead and then eventually food gets into their mouth. And the thing that keeps them moving isn't only that they're hungry, Right. It's also that mom and dad are right there, like so excited that they're hitting their forehead with the spoon, you know, and and giving them encouragement through the process as well. But the more that they do it, the thicker the neural pathway gets. And eventually it it feels like second nature. So when you talk about rewiring your brain, I mean, these are the kind of things I talk about when I teach live. And I always go into these tangents and I feel like half of the audience just thinks I'm a nerd and and doesn't want to hear, wants me to get back to the curriculum. And then there's a very small minority who likes the science of the brain, but it's really cool that we can take advantage from of these hacks, if you want to call them that, right? For lack of a better term, we know that generous people are more attractive. We know that generous people are happier. We know that when one member, I just read the study the other day, that when one member of the family is altruistic, using the word you just used, is altruistic or is externally focused through acts of service towards other human beings, the cognitive ability of everyone in the family improves. Everyone in the family gets smarter when one person in the family is externally focused and, and altruistic, that's not a small thing. It's like, there's a lot of things you can do to make your kids smarter, let's say, right? But that one is pretty easy. It's like, you see somebody carrying groceries, go help them. And then that will change your children's mental capacity. Like that's pretty profound. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. That's exactly what I've done. I started taking my kids onto the mission field with me when they were nine. And, you know, both my kids decided to become missionaries. And then my son became a Marine. And now my daughter, she went back to college and got her degree. And she's going to be taking over my company, my janitorial company. But the best thing I ever did was teach them how to help other people. And that's what's going to drive your success. And so a lot of people out there, they think like, oh, I've got to get everything I can to be successful. I've got to, you know, get these resources, get these customers, get these things. And if I have enough of this, then I can be on top of this pile and I can be the one who's successful. But I'll tell you, that success is very short-lived because nobody wants to work with somebody that they can't trust. And nobody wants to be sold anything. Think about it. Do you you want to be sold anything? Absolutely not. But everybody wants help with their problems. (laughs) And so if you can go into us, and this is more business-related stuff, right? I train young entrepreneurs this very cool concept. And so if you're listening, take a hold of this. If you go into a sales situation or something that we're trying to sell a product or service and that's your goal, odds are you're going to have a really tough time doing it. But if you can go in and you can identify a problem that somebody has and you can genuinely want to help them solve it, realizing that your product or service may not be the best for that customer, you will have success. Because even if you don't give them that sale, you just give them help with their problem. Like, hey, I could sell you this thing, but really you don't need it. You could just go do X. They're going to appreciate that much more. And you're going to have built a better relationship with that individual who is then going to refer you out, who is then going to uh, try and give you more business because they trust you. Hey, this guy could have sold me this thing that I didn't need, but instead he helped me find a solution. And if you can do that with your life, with any relationship is try to help other people be successful. That's how you're going to grow your influence and you'll find success. That'll be long lasting lasting success. And so it's kind of counterintuitive to what we think in the current business model, right? The rich people get rich by stepping on the backs of other people. But yeah, I'm not buying it, man. Yeah. The truly successful people though, 
they gain success by helping other people be successful because they gain influence by helping other people achieve their goals. And so there's a small minority community out there that truly takes this to heart and believes it. And just look at those people in your life. Look at the people who are always helping other people and ask yourself like, hey, is that success? Is that success that I want to replicate? And if it is, then go spend time with a man and do what they do. Help other people be successful. And you'll be amazed how good you feel. Number one, it builds mental resiliency and how much you grow your influence and how much people trust you and will come to you when they need advice or when they need to bring somebody on board who is a trusted partner. They're going to look to you because you've spent a tremendous amount of time building relationship with them and helping them be successful. That's that's amazing. So I think I'd like it back to something you said earlier, where you were talking about generosity as we were talking about generosity and power, right? I think this is a real big focus in society right now, right? As you look at the trends and what people are talking about, but power and wealth and those things are starting to be dirty words or are becoming more dirty words than they were before. And a lot of people, I think, have the missing, the poor view that success is something that has gotten through raw power, maybe I would, I would say it that way. And that there's something about the way that we're wired. So it doesn't matter. I'm a believer as well. I believe that we're created in the image of God. And, and so as I talk about our design, that's why I say that. But whether you think we're designed or you think we're evolved, it really doesn't matter. There's something about the way that we are that we gravitate towards competence, right? And competence can breed power and competence can breed that competition. But there's another part of it that we elevate people or another reason we elevate people. We want people that are highly competent, but we also want people that are highly generous, right? And if you want to say that we evolved, you go back and, and just think about the way we were designed when we were out on the plains hunting buffalo, right? We want someone who's a proficient hunter. We don't want a selfish hunter, right? We don't want the guy who goes out there, kills the buffalo, and then keeps everybody else away from it. We want the guy who's going to bring it back so that all of the rest of us are going to be able to eat together and survive and thrive as a community. And so the way that we're wired is to feel good when we're generous because it's better for all of us when that happens, right? And so those of you who may not be familiar with it, just haven't tried it yet. You never feel better. Look, Dave Ramsey says this thing. He says, hey, on Easter and Christmas, the only people who are working at Waffle House are the only, are, are people that have, no choice but to be working at Waffle House at, at Christmas Eve. He said, if you want to see what gratitude feels like and how it makes you feel, get $300 out of your bank account, have your kids sit in the car where they can see what happens, go inside, order a cup of coffee, drink it, or don't just get it to go, leave, pay the bill, and slide the $300 under the bill and just get out of there as fast as you can, right? And go sit in your car with your children. And he said, everyone does exactly the same thing. They pick up the bill, they take the three crisp $100 bills. They immediately look up in the sky and thank God for the gift that they just got. And then everyone in the car is crying, right? You'll never feel better in your life than you feel at that moment ever, like ever, you know, and I won't share personal family stories because I just don't want to, I don't want to share stories like that, but I can confirm that that is true. You never feel better than you do at that moment, like ever. So yeah, I would, I would just say we are wired. I would just double down on that. We are absolutely wired to feel good when we're generous and to look up and to want to do business with those that are as well. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And the research, there's research out there that backs up exactly what you're saying. There's countless research studies that have been done about altruism and helping other people and generosity and how that builds mental resiliency. And it, what it does is it releases chemicals in your brain, your dopamine, your serotonin, which are what you need to, and sometimes even adrenaline, right? Sometimes we get a little bit of adrenaline rush. Oh, yeah. We need those chemicals to feel good. And that's the best 
fastest and longest lasting way to, to do that. Because here's what happens. Here's, here's what happens with the brain, right? So you do this act of kindness and you get this reward, right? This mental health bonus when you do it and you feel so good. And what I hear from people that go through my program, when we go build a home for a homeless family, is they say, I feel like I got so much more out of this than I actually gave. Right. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. How do I quantify it? And so I looked at the research and I found out that your body releases these chemicals. The people who got the reward, they do get a mental health boost, but it's very small and it only lasts for a moment. But the people who do this act of kindness, they get a huge mental health boost. But then every time they tell that story, they get another one and another one. And it's a bottomless well. And, and, and here's why. That's right. And here's why. Here's what happens. Your subconscious mind is where your memories and emotions are stored, right? In your subconscious mind, it can't tell the difference between reality and what's a memory. It has no idea to, to do that. So when it brings up that memory, it also brings up all those emotions as if it's happening right now. Right. And we look at the negative side of this with trauma. We see the same thing, right? A negative trauma memory comes in, we get those negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions. But it happens the same way with positive ones, right? That are really dramatic like that. So when you go do that act of kindness and you're with your friends and family and you get to share it and talk about it, it gives you that mental health boost. So you go through the whole program in my book, you go through this whole thing with a small group of guys. And then in six weeks, we challenge you to go out and do one of these public services, you know, somewhere in your mm-hmm. community to go help somebody as a group, right? Because it's that squad mentality. And then you'll get that mental health boost. But you'll also, every time that you guys talk about that and relive that experience, you're going to get that again and again and again yeah. and again. So like I said, each of these little things is just a little building block until you get to this final thing of showing you like, hey, healing through service really works. It's quantifiable. And then they prove it to themselves. So like you said, it's just the way we're wired. It's the way God created us. And, and in the Bible, when you start reading it through that lens, uh, you start to see these things. You know, Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And I can quantify that. Like, that's yeah. exactly right. The brain, like I said, I, science and the Bible are not at odds, right? Science is proving what the Bible's been telling us. <laughs> so, you know, right. I go through that in the book and showing all these scriptural components that science is proving. I, I want to ask you so many things. I want to be sensitive to time too, but I want to ask you so many things. One of the things that I want to say is, so I'm always hesitant to share stories of our family. We, we recently did a Disney commercial. And so uh, highlighting our family and gratitude in particular. And so we're going to, some of the stuff's going to be public. So I'll share some of it. Like one of the things that we do, I'll, I'll give you a small idea of how you can rewire your brain. Here we go. This, this is what I want to say about what you said earlier. There's another component too, and I'm sure you talk about this in, in your book. But one thing to add to that is that our brains are dopamine seeking machines right? Like your brain is like, where's, and that's why things like pornography, alcohol, drugs, those things are so dangerous because you're rewiring your brain and your brain's going, that's where I can get dopamine. That's where I can get pleasure, the reward center of my brain. And your brain will go towards the path of least resistance. And that will be the thickest pathway that you've got. Right. And so that's why smokers smoke. And and when they get stressed, they want a cigarette right away because their brain's going, oh, that's the fastest pathway to relief from this feeling that I'm feeling. And so what you're talking about is their brain sees that they get this dopamine. Their brain goes, oh, that's a path to dopamine. And so if you're willing to go down that path, now your brain is looking for opportunities to get that feeling again. Your brain's like, oh, if I leave a dollar or if I leave $5 right now when I pay for my ice cream and the person behind me gets free ice cream, I'm going to feel so good. And you're not thinking that. You're not thinking of it in a self-serving way, but, but you know that you want to do it. And you have very little control of what you want to do, virtually none. But your brain will start to indicate to you that, hey, you want to do this right now. And you're not going to be able to put words to it because you're going to get dopamine, but your brain is telling you like, do this. We need to feel good right now. So leave an extra hundred bucks in that tip jar, you know, or whatever it is. It's exactly right. So for me, one of the things that I do, one of the tips that I do all the time, I tell people this, 
But when I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling bad, I look for somebody I can go help. Honestly, like I, I was feeling so overwhelmed with this technology startup and feeling like, gosh, I do not know what I'm doing. Like how, what here? You know, I'm a janitor, you know, like I'm not some tech mogul. I barely know how to operate my phone, but here I've got this technology that I created that's saving lives. And I just feel overwhelmed and dealing with that and the depression of that. And I saw a buddy of mine who's an inventor and he invented this thing called the Tacticlip. So free plug for you, Bo. It's a tactical hair clip that he created and they're amazing. And so he created this new one that has this different color and it was just coming out. And he's like, I don't know really how to promote this. What should I do? Because we're friends. We're talking about this new cyberpunk color, right? And I was feeling pretty depressed that morning. And I saw him trying to promote this thing. And so I called him up and said, hey, how many of those things you got? He's like, well, I got 200 of them. I'm like, all right, let me buy all of them. So I went and bought all of them. And then I just went out on the street and I started giving them out to just random people. And taking photos with them and say, hey, put this hashtag up. I did a little video. I was actually going to work with the Seattle Seahawks that day. And so I went up there to the Seattle Seahawks and I gave it out to all the people that were up there with the Task Force 12. And man, I felt so much better about my day because I was out there actively helping one of my friends be successful. I got nothing out of it. It actually cost me money because I paid for these things. He didn't give them to me. I paid for them. So he sold out all the ones that he had, his shipment. I bought all of them. And then I just gave them away to whoever I came across. So that person got a free gift and it was really cool. And my buddy got some free promotion and advertising with a population he would have never been able to touch. Right. And so doing those little things and they become a habit now, right? It's not just when I feel bad. It's anytime I travel, I do that. I bring a copy of my book. I bring a couple of tactic clips and I look for somebody to be able to give it to and to be able to help. And I instantly feel better. And that person feels better too. Like, oh, wow, I got this blessing out of nowhere. It's incredible. So it's just, you start to build that goodwill because there's so many things in our life that just beat us down, you know? So why not brighten somebody's day with something small and easy? You know, that's right. Dude, this is why when you see a kid with a lemonade stand, you get the $5 out of your pocket, man. And you just go and you get a cup of lemonade and a cookie, even if you're not going to eat it and you're just going to throw it in the trash, right? You always get the lemonade. Like it doesn't matter if you're going to drink it or not. And then the look on their face when you say, Hey, keep the change. Like it's two bucks, but to them, like that, that's it. Like that's all they wanted. And it is such an amazing feeling. So I'm going to give you something. You can take this with you and I don't need any royalties on this, man, but you, you can have this. But one of the things that we do in our family with our daughters is that when we, we go to Disney a lot and we use that as part of our mission field. And um, so when we go there, we're always on the hunt to bless people. And primarily we're looking to bless cast members. And so our daughters, our two youngest daughters, that's just become what they do. And so we always bring stickers or slap bracelets or, you know, whatever it is for the holiday, you know, Easter things doesn't matter. But what's happened over time is that our two daughters who are seven and nine, they've gotten into this habit that all they do when we go to Disney, they have this external focus and they're just looking for people to give a blessing to. And, and it's crazy how starved people are for connection because they give a sticker to a cast member that just says, you know, you're awesome or you're great or you're killing it, or it just might have a joke on it. doesn't matter. Cast members cry. Like cast members get so worked up and touched. And our daughters, that's their path to dopamine. They don't realize it, but but that's it. My daughter sees a kid crying and she goes, I need to go give him a sticker right away. We're like, go ahead, baby. Here's some stickers. And, and she runs over there and, and she gives the stickers. And I was just thinking, as you were talking of what you're doing, of like, man, what a cool thing. Like you could have something simple like that that you can give people like stickers that they can buy on your website that just say like, you're awesome. You're doing great. You're killing it today. And just tell your people like, it's something as simple as men. 
you see the janitor at the, not that I picked janitor because of you, but you see the janitor at Wendy's <laughs> who's just, he's cleaning up the floor and having a great attitude. I mean, give the dude a sticker and be like, man, I just want you to know you're killing it right now. Like the first time that you do that, you're going to be nervous. Like you will be, I know, because I, I am. But after like the second or third time and you realize the impact that such a simple gesture has, I always tell my kids, never miss an opportunity to tell someone they're doing a good job ever. And it's, it's that. It is for the person you're helping. It's for their benefit but it changes you. It transforms you in every way. So yeah, I just wanted to add that in and man, take it, do something with it. Don't do yeah, something that's all yours. You're, you're absolutely right. I have these coins. So when people finish my healing through service and they go out and they do something, you know, and I give these out when they come with me to Mexico, it's a coin. And on the back of the coin, it says healing through service. And then on the back, it says, go be a force multiplier for good. Right. And so what I want them to do is when they go do this act of service and they get this coin, that coin is something physical that's attached to that memory right? And your brain will start to, like you just said, start to look for those areas where they can help. And it's so cool that you're teaching your daughters this right now, because they're going to be so well adjusted when they get older, when trauma hits them, when sadness hits them, when breakups hit them, when all of that stuff hits them, they're going to be better equipped to deal with it because they've already understood how the brain operates and how they can get relief from that is to go and help other people, to be somebody who is encouraging to other people. They're going to grow their network. They're going to grow their influence. They're going to be more well-adjusted. This is something that I think that it should be taught in schools, you know, is how to be helpful to your community. You know, everybody wants to complain about national politics, but nobody wants to get down in their own communities and actually do the work to help other people. And if we focused more on doing that and less on the national politics circus, we would have much better communities. You know, we'd live happier lives. I agree. Yeah. At some point we out, it feels like at some point we outsourced it. Right. Whereas like we, (laughs) we, we want to keep church and state separate and I'm all good with it. Fine. Keep church and state separate. You know, Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's give God what's got him. I'm cool with that idea. But something happened in the society during that where it was like, oh yeah, but the stuff that Jesus is talking about there is, is broad, but it also applies to our service. It's like, Hey, the stuff we're doing in our communities and with our neighbors and loving them. And, and so that's us and government's doing what government's doing. And we're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. And whether you believe or don't believe it doesn't matter. The, well, it does very much, but it doesn't matter in, in this context where it's like, don't outsource service. Don't outsource helping your neighbor. Don't outsource helping the homeless, right? The government spent, I think, $6 trillion all collectively trying to solve world hunger. It's like, how many of us actually donated food? How many of us actually went to the soup kitchen? How many of us actually built a house for homeless person? Like how many people did that? And I, I have a venture to say that it would cost a lot less than $6 trillion if all of us just spent an hour a week, you know, getting off of our butts and, and helping somebody else. So I do want to ask you a few quick questions. Uh, as we look at your book, obviously we, we're very like-minded. I knew this going into this interview. I was really excited about it. But when we talked a little bit about healing through service, but practically speaking, what do people do next with healing through service? You, you talked about courses and coaching and all that stuff, but could you just really quickly just give us an overview of what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of pathways. You can go to sergeantq.net, which is my page. And from there, you can get links to everything else, right? So from there, you can book me for a speaking engagement if you want or to train. I do a lot of corporate training for mental health, police and fire departments as well. So I can do that. If you want to buy the book, there's a pathway to buy the book there. There's an online course you can take as well, healingthroughservice.com, but you can find all of that through Sergeant Q. If you're a veteran and you're like, hey, I really want to go through this program, you can sign up to go on mission with us. We take a team to Mexico every year. I only have funding to do one trip per year. It costs me about 30, 30 grand to do this trip, to take a group of 25 guys down and do this trip cost me about 30 grand. And so uh, I only have funding to do one of those per year. 
If you're interested in that, you can sign up online. If you're a church or if you're an organization, it's like, hey, how do I bring this curriculum to my people? You know, if you're a leader, there's a couple of ways. Number one, the easiest way is to contact me directly, and then we can walk through what does that look like, right? What are your needs? How can we best present this curriculum to your people so that way they can absorb it? It's really designed to be taught as a small group. So I've got churches here locally that have been utilizing it. And then, like I said, out in Fort Bragg, they're starting it up to use out there for churches to help those guys who are far from God, give them an opportunity to come to church and get some valuable skills out of it, right? Learn that there's healing through service, healing through serving God and serving their communities, teach them how to brain operates and all of that. So we're giving them something tangible that they can use to help veterans in active duty in their communities. And I think it's incredibly valuable because you've got all these great guys that are out there and the church wants to help them. They just don't have a way to do it. I know when I first started going to church, they had no idea how to help. Pastors are not trained to be mental health counselors. They have no idea how to help me. They've had a totally different life experience than I have. And so now this is a tool that they can utilize and I can help them bring that there, identify a couple of vets that they could help raise into leadership to be able to reach the veteran community. And then from there, you can use this curriculum for everybody, not just veterans, right? And so I have churches that are using it for domestic abuse survivors. I've got another church is using it for trafficking victims uh, and just general, everybody experiences trauma, right? There was a study that said 67% of men in America admit to having a mental health crisis. That's two out of three men admit it. And so imagine how many didn't, right? I haven't met anyone yet who isn't going through something. Yeah, it's, it's, we're all going to deal with it. So we've got to start talking about it and normalizing it. And so this curriculum, it's written from a military perspective, but I explain all the vernacular so that way everybody can understand it and utilize these techniques. So that's how they can really get a hold of me. If you guys are interested with the technology that I created, you can find that as well on my website, or you can look at qactual.com. We're actually going through a round of funding right now. So I'm raising uh, a couple million dollars so I can hire a team to roll this thing out nationwide. So you can find all of that stuff there. That's how you guys can get connected with, with what I'm doing. I love it. And I'm going to give you the last thing I'm going to do is give you the floor and just let you talk about your tech to whatever degree you want to. And then we'll close the podcast out. I just want to ask you one more line of question really fast. And then then I think we'll wrap it up. So you're touching on something that I, I wanted to get your opinion on, which is the active duty stigma, which is we don't talk about it. And it's important to hear that, that this like we tend to think that it's a military stigma, like, hey, in the military, we don't talk about mental. That isn't true. Right. It is true in the military, but this is a societal issue, right? It's not only active duty, but I know people and I won't say their rank or their name or, or how I know them just because I want to protect their dignity and privacy. But I know someone who is uh, a friend of my family and he's in, in the Air Force and dealing with significant PTSD and he will not go to the doctor. He won't talk to anyone for fear of his career being derailed. He doesn't really have very many people in his life who are helping him. He's got a few good champions. I would say that. And so I'm going to basically this podcast is about how do we become leaders worth following by implementing in our lives and getting skills. And then how do we build leaders worth following, which is how do we give this to somebody else so that they can use it? Not just how do we make healthy people, but how do we equip healthy leaders to do what we do? And then the last piece is lead organizations everyone wants to work for. How do we lead teams where the stuff we're talking about is normal, not the exception to the rule? And so as you're thinking about this, the active duty stigma, let's say, me as a person, I have a part to play with myself. And we've been talking a lot about that, right? But then I have a part to play with how do I serve my people and, and how do I create sub leaders who can serve their people and then on my team. And I think leading into it is like, talk about hot sauce for a second and that idea of being really practical 
with what we do. And then are there any practical tips or practical things that if I'm looking at how I lead others or teaching my, my team to lead others through trauma and PTSD and things like that, what are, what are just like some really practical things that I could do right now in that vein? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk about the practical things and then I'll talk specifically to other leaders out there. So the first part, practical things, I found that something that really boosts my mental health is comedy, right? And I used to love going to comedy shows, but being in a packed you know, comedy show was really difficult for a long time. And so what I would do when I'm starting to feel depressed, or I'm starting to feel anxious, mostly when I'm feeling depressed, I will go on the internet and I will read hot sauce reviews off of Amazon. And if you have not done this, I'm telling you, I was in tears laughing so hard reading some of these hot sauce reviews. You you could just take these hot sauce reviews and put them into a book and publish it. And it, it would do really well. They are so funny. And that humor really, it stops your body from releasing stress hormones and you start releasing serotonin and dopamine. And you start also releasing adrenaline because when you're laughing, it boosts those chemicals in your brain. And it's super hard to be depressed when you're laughing, right? I mean, I've worked with people who were laughing, who were depressed and they were crying and then we're laughing and now we're laughing and we're <laughs> crying. And by the end of it, you know, we're doing just fine. And so that's a really cool practical tip. Go on there and read hot sauce reviews. Another good one is go to Amazon and look up five pound bag of sugar-free gummy bears and see the reviews that people put on the sugar-free gummy bears. I'm not going to tell you uh, what it's about. I'm just telling you, go do it. And it'll have you in stitches, man. And so that's one of my go-tos, right? When I'm starting to feel a little bit depressed, I just pop right on there and I read some reviews about hot sauce or gummy bears or something like that. You'll find some ones that are just gems out there and they're super funny. And so that's one of the things that I do that's very practical. Another thing that I do that is very practical is that I reach out to somebody. When I'm starting to feel anxious, depressed, I'm struggling with mental health, I immediately tell somebody, my wife, a trusted friend, like, hey, man, I'm just struggling with some depression right now. Not that they have to fix it, not putting that burden on them. But as soon as I get that off my chest, as soon as I tell somebody, I feel better instantly. It's it's an incredible thing. And you think like, that's not going to work. I'm going to feel worse. I'm scared to do that. But when you do that, anything that's in the darkness, when you bring it to the light, the darkness has to flee. Right. And if you're a Christian, if you study religion, you'll really understand that, that light and dark cannot occupy the same space. So when you bring that out and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, a couple of really cool things happen. Number one, you start to feel better because that burden is alleviated. Right. Number two, it gives that person in your life permission to tell you when they're struggling as well. Right. And you can, that, that give and take will be there. And so that's some practical things that I do. Another thing that you can do that's very practical is look up grounding techniques. All right. So those are things to do if you were struggling, right? But let's say you have a friend now who seems to be struggling with mental health. And it's like, how do I help this guy? Very simple thing you can do. Super simple. I teach this to law enforcement, grounding techniques. And so just Google grounding techniques and find one that you like and make that part of your repertoire, right? If you're having a conversation with somebody and you see that they're starting to get into a mental health crisis or they're starting to struggle with mental health, you say, Hey man, I learned this thing. It's going to sound kind of weird, but let's just try this exercise real quick and see what happens. All right. And you walk them through this grounding technique. The one that I love to use and it's what I put into my technology is I have them name five things that they can see, four things that they can hear, three things that they can feel, two things that they can smell, and one thing that they can taste. Right. And so a lot of times they'll taste, if those chemicals were released, they'll taste like a coppery kind of 
mm-hmm. flavor in their mouth, right? Or you hand them a stick of gum and, and you know, what do you taste? What you're doing is you're reengaging their cognitive thought process and you're bringing them back into the reality, taking them out of that subconscious emotional state into reality. So you can have a rational conversation with them. And so I've been teaching police officers how to do this when they come up on a scene and somebody's acting a little off, instead of just directly engaging with that person, asking them questions, who are you? What are you doing? They're not going to know. Their brain's not processing properly. That's why people attack the cops. That's not a normal thing. They do it because they're going through a mental health crisis. They can't process through the moment. They see a threat. They act on it. Fight, flight, or freeze, right? That's all they got. So if you can engage them in one of these grounding techniques and help them reestablish cognitive thought process, you'll have a lot more rational conversation with them and avoid a lot of these use of force complaints, right? And so I know my city has been utilizing that. These They call them de-escalation techniques, things like that. And so that's something you can do as a friend is you can have that, right? And if you have a friend and maybe you're struggling or your friend is struggling, have this conversation before an event happens, right? It's hard to do these things in the moment. So just like in the military, right? We didn't just go out on patrol and wing it, right? We had a lot of training. So that way, if we got into an ambush, I didn't have to think about who am I going to call? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? I would just execute the plan. I'd say near ambush left. Everybody knew we would turn left, engage the target and push through. I don't have to tell people what to do. They already know. Well, if we take that same battle tactic and apply it to a mental health crisis and say, hey, when you're struggling with mental health, we're going to do X. This is what we're going to do. Everybody knows it. So that way, when you go to your friend and say, hey, man, let's do a grounding technique real quick. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. Or you can have a code word for it. Like, hey, man, did you want to go get some black tea? Yeah, man, let's go get some black tea. You step around the corner, do some breathing exercises. You do uh, some of this cognitive reconditioning and you get them back in the fight, man. You get them patched up and they can go on and and you've got them back to even before they got into a mental health crisis, right? And that's the key is to, to help them maintain without getting overwhelmed and into the mental health crisis. So those are things you can do as a person. Those are things you can do as a friend. And now let's talk about leadership, right? What can leadership do? Well, number one, leadership, you can be transparent. I'm just going to let you sit with that for a minute. What does transparency mean to you? That means being open with your own struggles, right? And that doesn't mean that you have to stand on a soapbox and tell everybody your woes, but you can be transparent with your men. And take the same advice that you would give them, right? Which would be, hey, you need to go get help early and often. If you're transparent and you say, as a commander, as a leader, and you say, hey, I struggle with mental health, uh, but I don't surrender to it, right? These are some things that I have done in my professional career. These are some things I do in my private life. I'm open and honest with this small group of people. And this has really helped me. And if you need other resources, come and see us and we can help you get connected because we want to get you patched up and back in the fight. But being transparent, you're going to build trust with your junior leaders because nobody wants to work for somebody they cannot trust, right? And a lot of times as leaders, we set up because we don't talk about our failures. We don't talk about our struggles. We don't talk about these things. What we do is we set up an unreal expectation for the people under us. They're like, oh, well, Aaron, man, he, that guy's always got it together. He's, he's always hitting number tens. He's never failing. I'm never going to be able to measure up to that. And when they can't do that, then they feel worse about themselves. But if we can say, hey, I struggle with these things. I don't always get it right. And these are some things that I've done that have helped me. It gives them permission to go get that help and realize like, oh, okay, Aaron's not perfect. He does have have these struggles, but he's still wildly successful. So I can be successful too, even though I'm struggling with these things. And so, like I said, I've got 120 employees. And two years ago, I sat, I was having some interpersonal problems with some of my supervisors. So I sat them all down and I put them through my healing through service course, my mental health training. I put them through all of that. 
And one of my supervisors was like, no, that's a bad idea. I'm like, we don't want to open that can huh. of worms. And, you know, and I'm like, bro, we've been working together a long time, right? Like, trust me on this. I got this. This will work. And after the first meeting, the response that we got from our supervisors and our staff was overwhelmingly positive. They felt like they were heard. They felt like they were able to share like, hey, you know, I deal with this anxiety and I felt like I was all alone. And the rest of the supervisors like, hey, when you feel like that, let us know and we'll help you out, man. We'll back you up. We'll help you get these things accomplished. And, and the guy who was like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. He came back. He's like, man, I was really wrong. Like that was fantastic. That's helped. And it really helped us build the camaraderie with one another because everybody didn't feel like they were fighting this battle on their own because we all got things that we struggle with, right? And realizing that we all struggle with that and it's okay and we can move forward together was a huge impact on the mental health of my leadership team, which then, we know, drained down to my frontline worker. And I I think it's one of the greatest things that I've ever done is invested time in mental health. And it had to start with me being transparent and telling them like, hey, this is what I struggle with. They, They knew I struggled with PTSD, right? But they didn't understand to the depth until we started getting into the book and the teaching and the curriculum. And I tell you what, man, it's been fantastic for my organization. It really, really has. Longevity for my staff, And, you know, these skills, I tell them like, hey, these skills aren't just for here. Like you can take these skills back to your home and use them with your friends and family. And they do it and they come back and they tell me stories about it. And so it's super cool. So those are three things you can do. One for yourself, one for your friend. And if you're in leadership, be transparent with your people, man, and be honest and real with yourself. And don't worry about what other people going to do. Are they going to say, are they going to judge you? You got to do what's best for your troops. And what's best for your troops is you being open and honest about your own struggles because it gives them permission to get help. Yeah, dude. So starting out, you're taking over an organization. You share that in the beginning, whether you're doing it in your one-on-ones or you're doing it when you do your big group call and you're just like, hey, what's up, everyone? This is who I am. I struggle with this and that. The faster you get that out, the better. Like just get it out onto the floor, whether you feel doing it in one-on-one or in the group setting. The worst thing you can do, and I'm only echoing what you just said a few minutes ago, so I'm not really adding anything to the conversation. The worst thing you can do is your person freaks out or your person has a suicidal ideation or something. happens, And then you sit down with them and go, Hey, it's okay. You know what? I struggle with this too. You're like, oh, great. Now I know that you struggle with this too, right? And so there is the responsive piece and that's great. And do the responsive piece, but it's the the preventative piece. That's where we, I think as the leaders in particular, we think we can outsource that, right? Like the preventative piece, we're just not doing as much. And so, um, well, brother, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of the imposter syndrome. I don't know if we have, if you want to do another episode on managing success or if you want to dig into that now, but I definitely wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about, there's so many things I feel like we could talk for another two hours, but I did want you to talk because I think my listeners need your app. And so oh, yes. I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your app and I don't want to run out of time on that. So if you wanted to do another episode, we could do one on uh, managing success because I think both you and I have some real similarities in this area. It's just like, I don't belong here. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about managing success on another podcast because I think it's incredibly okay. valuable for people who are coming up into leadership and coming up into you know some measure of success and the stumbling blocks that we put in front of ourselves yes. as our own limiting beliefs, right? And so I think that you're right. That deserves its own conversation. So we'll put a pin in that one and we'll do that one at another time. But well, yeah, the technology I created, um, I created it just for veterans. It was originally called Operation Pop Smoke. Right now, the name's been changed to Q Actual. Now, Operation Pop Smoke still exists, but inside the app. So the app is basically a messaging app. Uh, It's a texting app between you and two or three friends, and that's it, right? It's not a social media platform. You can't search for anybody on there. If you download the app, you send a private invite through an SMS in the app 
to your friends that you want to be part of your support network. And so you give support and you can receive support through the app. And so there's four main pillars that that we created in the app. One is the squad mentality, because the Department of the Army did a 40-year-long study and determined that the number one successful component to success on the battlefield is the squad, right? And so that's why we have this small unit of just two or three guys that are going to help each other when they're struggling with mental health. The second thing we have is this concept of hope. And so the hope that we give each other is that somebody cares for us and somebody's going to help us, right? When we're utilizing this technology. The third thing is that we have a user-friendly way for people to communicate when they're struggling with a mental health crisis. Because part of the brain actually shuts down when you're going through a mental health crisis, which is good decision-making skills, long-term planning, and the ability to overcome impulses. And we know that suicide's an impulse. And so now when somebody's struggling with mental health, they don't have to think about who am I going to call? What am I going to do? They simply press one button on their app and it sends an alert out to their friends that they've already pre-selected. And it pops up on their phone like an Amber alert. They select it and they're instantly chatting with that individual who's in distress. For the person who's in distress, when they push the button, it starts a cognitive reconditioning program, which is one of those grounding techniques that we just talked about. It pops up and it helps them bring their cognitive thought process back online so they can have a rational conversation with their squad inside the chat. But let's say that individual doesn't answer up or the individual is saying some things that think they might have an attempt. It doesn't even matter because when they initiated that signal, it turned on their GPS locator. And now their squad can navigate directly to their position. Or if they have had an attempt, they can help emergency services navigate to that individual's location. Because if there is an attempt that's been made, those moments really, really matter. And the fourth thing we do is we help you start to monitor your own mental health. There's a daily wellness check that you do every single day. And at the end of the week, you'll get an email that shows you your mental health data for the week, month, uh, and year to date. And you'll be able to start seeing the progression of your mental health throughout a year and help you be able to take better control of that. Now, all of that data is completely private. The only people who see the chat data are you and your friends in that group. Your mental health data is only yours. Nobody else sees that. But if you want, you can share that data with your mental health provider. So if you're seeing a counselor or a mental health provider, there is a clinician dashboard where they can see that data in real time and help you create a better mental health plan by being able to look at this data. So those are the four components that we really have inside the app that's been so successful. It just went through clinical trials with amazing results. Cone Health out of North Carolina, they put it through medical trials. We had 100% success with the individuals who were utilizing it. So people would come in to the hospital needing help for suicidal ideations, and they would give them an opportunity to use this technology. Everybody who got the technology that way, all of them are still alive. So we had 100% success with that. And we had a 90% reduction in readmittance to the hospital for suicidal ideations for a second time. So it was incredible results. I start a program out of Stanford next month in May. It's called the LBAN program. So Latin, it's Latino business initiative down there for entrepreneurs. And so it's an eight-week course that I'll go through and they're going to help me scale this business out so we can get it into the hands of every single person in America. So we're working, we're looking for strategic partners right now who are working in the mental health space. I want this tool to be like Anglico, right? You could take an Anglico Marine and you could add us to any unit in the military and we become a force multiplier. We help them, we bring our capabilities to help them be better, faster, and stronger and win the battles. And that's exactly what this technology is. So anybody who's working in a mental health space who wants to utilize this technology in their program, we'd love to hear from you guys because we're looking for strategic partners who can utilize this technology to better serve the demographic 
that they are trying to help. We're going to help you be better, faster, and stronger so you can start winning battles as well. It's absolutely phenomenal. And the main reason I had you on today is because I hang my flag on the fact that I want to simplify leadership and make it extremely practical. And I don't want to transform culture across the DOD. I want every airman to reach their potential. It's very difficult to do that. This is a very crowded space to be in, and it isn't always incredibly practical, the things that we do. And suicide prevention is no different. And there's so much education and training that we get inside the DOD when it comes to suicide prevention and training, but not all of it feels like it's making a difference. And I'm not making a judgment on individual programs, just saying not all of it feels like it's making a difference, but what you're doing. And I think one of the reasons you're going to be so incredibly successful is that when you're smart, you're getting your stuff quantified. You're having the studies done that show that what you're doing works and what you're doing does work. And so those of you who are listening need to buy his book. I'm going to give him one chance to tell you where to, to connect with him one more time, but you need to buy his book, look at his training courses and his programs get the app, go out and, and figure out how to do that and, and get that app and set up your network, especially if someone in your life struggles. The whole point of this entire podcast today has been, what do you do, right? Not how do we solve the problem, but what do you do? And I hope that today you walked away with some really good stuff that you can do. So Sergeant Q, why don't you close us out, tell people where they can reach you. And I'm excited about the idea that we might get to talk again. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. It's been incredible to have this conversation with you. And I look forward to our next one. So if you guys are out there and you're interested, the best way to reach out is sergeantq.net and you can find everything there. You know, you'll find the, the book, you can get it on Amazon, but honestly, it's cheaper if you get it through my publisher, Redemption Press. So you can get the book there. You can connect with me. There's healingthroughservice.com where you can see the online video series that goes with the book. If you're interested in the app, you can go to qactual.com or you can look at operationpopsmoke.com. That was the original, that website's still up and you can still see the original version there. If you want to utilize this app, you can absolutely download it, pay the monthly fee and do that. And it'll work. It's great. But the true power is wielded in the organization that's giving it out. Because I've experienced this in my own life. And this is why I'm really putting the ownership onto organizations to be distribution partners for this app because people can get it. Sure, that's great. But the true power is in the organization because you as an organization have community partners that can offer additional resources, right? This is a tool that people can use, but some of them are going to need additional care, drug and alcohol treatment, counseling, therapy. You can customize the resources for individuals inside the app, number one. And number two, like I said, you have community partners. So if I have somebody who's feeling suicidal, but only when they've been drinking heavy, maybe this person needs to go through some alcohol treatment. So for the average person to get an alcohol treatment, it takes six to nine months to, to get into a program. But as an organization, you have community partners and you can usually, I know I can, I can get people into alcohol treatment the same day because of the community partnerships that I have. And so that's the true power that we have. If we really want to help people, we can't just give them a list of resources and say, go figure it out, right? We have to walk side by side and be their mentor, their cadre to help them find success. And we can do that by utilizing this app, but also by getting them connected to additional ongoing resources. And so if you're in leadership, that's your responsibility to take good care of your people. And I created this tool to help you be able to do that. I love it. And so those of you who are in positions of leadership in organizations, installations, spaces, I'm going to be pushing this for sure. I know some people in particular who are struggling to move some metrics. I have some people I talk to and coach that you know, have some of the worst numbers in the business and uh, are trying to find new ways and things that they can do. So uh, I think that this is a tool that's proven to work. And I think that's important. So Sergeant Q, it's been an absolute pleasure, brother. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. 
Thanks for listening to the Military Sherpa Podcast with Mark Tilsher.